Hello, and welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Daniel Kane. And we are the assistant editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. Aims to help Americans think a little more clearly about our public life and rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. This published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today, we're excited to be joined by Dr. Ralph Lerner. Dr. Lerner is the Benjamin Franklin Professor Emeritus in the Committee on Social Thought at the University of Chicago. For our spring 2021 issue, Dr. Lerner wrote a fascinating essay titled Puzzling Over Franklin. In his piece, he relates why Benjamin Franklin remains an inscrutable figure for Americans who study him today. Throughout nearly seven decades of writing, Franklin often hid himself behind masks, using pseudonyms and comic characters to keep a low profile and voice heterodox opinions. But while pinning Franklin down is no easy task, some stances do emerge from a survey of his writings and career, including the importance of working behind the scenes and through others, and the value of self-education for forming a self-governing people. Dr. Lerner, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Okay, so Dr. Lerner, I want to start with a quote that is at the very beginning of your piece. You write that the Ben Franklin we know today is, quote, a man with a studied familiarity, albeit with an aura suggesting that he observes more than he reports. Someone who seems like one of us, but also stands apart, a keen spectator taking in the human comedy, which is just a kind of a great quote and summation of, of how we think about Franklin. And then you also add that he wrapped himself in mystery. So just to start off with, I wanted to ask you, why does Franklin still confound us today? And would you say, is he the most mysterious and penetrable founding father? Is that, is that fair to say? Yes, I think that those are defensible propositions. The present day understanding of Franklin is very often shaped by the, the thinking of people who really didn't like him or that didn't like his message. Mark Twain, for example, thought that Franklin's presentation of his life in the so-called autobiography was actually a plot by fathers to berate their sons and show them how inadequate they were. <laughs> Look at what Franklin was able to do. Yeah, you know, that would be that would be comparable to a mother telling her daughter, who was practicing rather lamely on the piano, "You oaf! Look what Mozart did at your age." <laughs> so that's one sense of the modern understanding, the current understanding of Franklin, that it's just sort of unreal, and we don't have to believe that. Another source of misunderstanding comes from people like Max Weber and D.H. Lawrence, who really didn't like him. They thought he was an old prude or that he was merely a money grubber and there was no depth behind it. It was just self-advancement. So that's another thing that works against understanding Franklin or trying to puzzle him out. Franklin was very careful in how he presented himself to the public. And even from youth, so it presents a really considerable challenge to try to figure out what he wants of us. Is he presenting himself as a model, as an example to follow? Well, that would be a very hard thing for people to accept today. But if we thought of his life and of his very artful presentations of himself, then we could come to a different we would bring a different question to him. How do we proceed from the innocent, naive, 
self-centered child that we all were when we were children to someone who follows an intelligible, rational, and useful life. So it's not a question of walking in Franklin's steps, but rather more a notion of what can we observe about how you move from thoughtless, self-centered behavior to being a useful member of the public, and especially a thoughtful one. So something like that, I think, can be extracted from this amazing fellow's life. So the piece in, in a certain light, I, I like how we sort of started, because I think the piece is kind of an attempt to draw out those lessons by examining Franklin's life. And you sort of start at the beginning and one of the first periods of Franklin's life that you draw our attention to is the silence do good letters that Benjamin Franklin wrote at the age of 16 for the New England Current, so about 1722. And this was a series of letters that he wrote as the character Silence Do Good. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that character that Franklin created, why he created that character, and, and how much of himself he put into it. Yes, those are good questions. And it's not, I mean, it's not simple to even approach an answer to your why question. He's 16 years old, and he's trying to get, so to speak, an op-ed piece into his brother's newspaper. And at this time, he's an apprentice to his brother. So he has to present this text anonymously. You know, he dropped it through the mail slot at night. Nobody knows who wrote it. If his brother knew that, his brother's the publisher. If his brother knew it was from young Ben, he'd toss it. Okay. (laughs) But more generally, yeah, he adopts this mask and presents a woman of fierce independence. And she doesn't tolerate, she doesn't tolerate nonsense. She's very good at chastising people for their failings and brags about it. And she clearly, I don't know if you would say resentful, but at any rate, really critical of the powers that be in 1720s Boston, okay, the establishment, so to speak. So using her, he gets at all these people, beginning, of course, with our college, Harvard. You have to remember Franklin had all of one year of schooling. And by the by, with the, the whole clerical establishment in Boston. So you might say it's like a three cushion shot. He doesn't go out there and expose himself to criticism. He has her do it. And she can take care of herself. Ask her, she'll tell you. She is not silent. You understand, this is a comic character with a serious intent. Something so wonderful in terms of the comedy about this, especially the no-nonsense dimension of the character, given that it's a, it's a teenage boy pulling us off as a prank in the voice of a no-nonsense woman. Yeah. That's beautiful. <laughs> so... This is becoming less a three-cushion shot and more like three-dimensional <laughs> You mentioned the, the idea that she's critical of the Boston establishment. She talks about Harvard College and that there's students of wealthy parents there who, when they emerge from the college, are, quote, as great blockheads as ever, only more proud and self-conceited. So not exactly a rousing endorsement of Harvard's education. But she's also, toward some of the later letters, forgiving 
of some of the vices of people in Boston, what she calls the night walkers. And that they also, you know, she says, quote, contribute very much to the health and satisfaction of those who have been fatigued with business or study. So kind of, you mentioned earlier, Franklin Bieber trade is prudish. That not exactly the, the take you would expect from a character, you know, writing through Franklin's voice. But you also mentioned too that Science Sugan is quite progressive. She talks about the mis- miseducation of women and how to correct that, wants more support for poor widows, defends freedom of th- thought and speech, criticizes religious leaders for being hypocritical, and really it's just a, against kind of any kind of zealotry or extremism. So yeah, could you kind of elaborate for us a bit on some of these themes in the Science Do Good letters and how much do, do they reveal exactly about Franklin or, or is it just, is it hard to say? Well, I mean, you've got several questions piled in there. The character does develop in the course of these 14 or so letters. From early on, she's no nonsense and she knows her mind and she even delights in telling people off. But by the end of the letters, and there's about a five-month spread there from the first letter to the last one, she's become more mellow. She's been studying, she says. Remember, this is a country girl, and she at certain at a certain point in the course of these letters, she decides she's going to go to, to the city and see what kinds of vices are prevailing there. Well, guess what? She finds street walkers and sailors with their girlfriends behaving the way sailors with their girlfriends behave on shore, shore leave and stuff like this. And she becomes a cooler observer of human frailty and in a way more forgiving. Maybe she studied something. Maybe she learned something in the course of it. And you might say, that's in that respect, that's true of Franklin, too. He's a very saucy fellow. He just, I mean, you can see how his elder brother would have trouble keeping him on good behavior. That kind of rivalry is not all that uncommon in, in families. But he lives a very long life, Keith Franklin. And he's from the beginning, he's a very careful observer of human behavior. He looks, and I mean, it's more than looking, he observes. And he thinks about what he sees, frailty, vanity, ignorance, obstreperousness, all sorts of things. He sees these qualities in human beings. And he thinks about how out of these materials can we make a more decent society, a more thoughtful one, one that doesn't just go off half cocked. So could I just, I'm curious if we could narrow in on, on his evolving views on American independence. And so there's something that I like about the piece that I'm not sure is ever made explicit, though. There's something in the rebelliousness of the youngest son of 12 children or 17 children, something crazy like that, who's yeah, yeah speaking in the voice of, of a young, fierce, independent woman criticizing all of these institutions that I think sort of beautifully prefigures the kind of revolutionary way that we think about the later Franklin. And I'm wondering if you see parallels there, that there was a kind of spirit of rebelliousness that, that sort of informed his contributions to the American founding. Well, there is a spirit of critical independence, but Franklin was not a revolutionary in the sense that he couldn't wait to get out of the British Empire. He couldn't wait to get out of Cotton Mather's Boston. That's for sure. <laughs> so he becomes 
I mean, he's a fugitive. He doesn't even tell his family, let alone his brother employer, that he's leaving. He sneaks out and goes far away, many days away, to a distant city, Philadelphia. Okay. But in terms of the, the, the larger political context, he was not eager for America to leave the British Empire. He admired the British Empire. He thought that the people who were in charge of their colonial policy were ignorant, opinionated, vengeful, self-destructive. But they were so proud of themselves, they couldn't listen to anything. So if he had had his druthers, Britain wouldn't do stupid things like try to impose the Stamp Act and so on. They would accept that these people out on the North Atlantic coast, on the other side of the Atlantic, you know, weren't barbarians, just sort of white versions of American Indians, savages in their understanding. No, they would understand that we're, we're Britons too. Yeah, but they couldn't get that through their heads. So at a certain point, when Franklin was the agent for four different colonies in America, he spent 10 years in Britain at that time, writing articles, hoaxes, all sorts of things, letters to the editor, trying to show them that they were on the wrong course and that America was valuable to them in ways that their policies didn't recognize. So at a certain point, there was no good. And when they hauled them in front of a parliamentary committee, and here is this man in his 60s standing through hours of interrogation by an especially nasty attorney general and not saying a word, you might say that's a critical moment. It wasn't just that his recommendations, however thoughtful, though unappetizing to the powers that be, it wasn't that his proposals were just rejected. It was the contempt that was shown toward him. So my view is you can forgive injuries. And you can even forget, but it's, you don't forgive or forget contempt. So at that point, he's no longer with them, and they're no longer with him. He loved Britain, and he had great friends during all those years that he lived in London. They were, they were high-class people, but it wasn't to be. Yeah, Dr. we've been talking about Franklin living kind of a life of self-examination and change. We've mentioned already American independence and then also religion. Just one other thing we wanted to mention in that vein is slavery. You talk about how when Franklin is in his early 40s, he's made enough money from printing to retire from that, to rent a bigger house. He now owns domestic slaves. He has nicer dinnerware and things like that. But then later he changes that view. He frees his slaves by the end of his life and becomes a member of the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, petitions Congress for abolition. Could you tell us a little bit more about Franklin's evolution of thinking on that issue? Well, he, the thing about Franklin is that he's, he's extremely open to evidence. <laughs> so for many years that I'd been studying Franklin, I never realized that he had owned slaves. Okay. But he did. It was a sign, you might say, that he had come up in the world. You know, he had retired from his business. And now, as you say, he... He doesn't dine on earthenware and pewter. Okay, I mean, it, he's not, you know, it's not a penny saved is a penny earned anymore. 
Right. He's got enough to adopt various signs of prosperity and even luxury. But so I, you know, so I don't say it, it was just the, the normal or accept the thing that if you've made it in the world, the next thing you should do is get yourself some slaves. And of course, slavery was not a, a big thing, as far as I know, in Quaker, Pennsylvania at that time. But he did. He had household slaves. And then he went to some schools where they were teaching, as they would call young Negroes then, and discovered that these children are on a par with white children. Mm-hmm. But there's a fact. How do I process that discovery with my present behavior? So, I mean, it's that openness to evidence. Okay. And so he realized, no, this is wrong. I mean, you might say that Quakers have been telling him all along that it's wrong, but that's neither here nor there. He discovers it for himself. And he writes at some point a letter. I'm not going to explain my prejudices. Okay. I'm not going to defend them. But unspoken, but understood. But now I know better. That's right. So he joins this philanthropy that was set up from England, where they had special schools in America for teaching young children, and especially black children. And lo and behold, yeah, he becomes an abolitionist. The last thing Franklin wrote on in his life, on his deathbed, was, was a hoax, a parody of a speech that a member of Congress from Georgia had given. Okay, and he he writes this, you know, in defense of slavery and against receiving any petitions for the abolition of slavery or even of the slave trade. And Franklin makes a speech, which is allegedly made by some high official in Algeria in defense of the enslavement of Christians. Okay, okay. At least we, at least we, we, we teach them the right religion. And they're better off here than they would be, you know, back in England or France or wherever. I mean, the point is made. That's the last thing Franklin wrote on his deathbed. His hand hasn't lost it. It's cunning. <laughs> he knows how to do this sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. How fitting. That's wonderful. As we sort of wind down, I wanted to just dwell on sort of one of the things that you emphasize in the piece, which is Franklin's emphasis on swimming. He, in his discussions of education and his own education, he discusses swimming. His, he, was, he taught himself how to swim. I guess you could say that's sort of autodidactic. And he made, he made a great show of it. He was very proud of having learned to swim, and he liked to perform his swimming and advocated for swimming. So can you tell us what, what swimming meant to Franklin and why you chose to emphasize it in the piece? Well, I actually learned this from a student in my class. But it's, it's there. The evidence is there. I mean... He's in his 60s, and he writes a letter, a long letter, many pages to someone, urging him and telling him how to learn to swim. Okay, well, it certainly helps if you're on a ferry and the the boat is about to sink. You know, you can save yourself. That's one. But it's beyond that. It's to develop some sense that you can overcome danger, that you don't have to be frightened that you can approach situations that seem overwhelming with the kind of confidence and a justified confidence, not just phony conf- confidence, 
that you're going to be able to make it. Now, if you have people like that in your country, well, they're not going to be bamboozled or overwhelmed by high-flying high flyers, okay? They're going to know their rights. They're going to know their responsibilities. They're going to know what principles make for a self-governing people. And they won't just kowtow just because you, you know, you've got the robes of office or great titles. In that sense, swimming, you might say, is emblematic. And he tells the story in his autobiography, the thing that's called the autobiography, it has no title. He tells the story. So when he tells a story, there's a point. It's not just to amuse you. That, you might say, is one of the lessons he wanted to bring out. And he doesn't have to dot the I's and cross the T's. Just notice it. If you observe what I'm telling you, I'm speaking as though frankly, if you observe what I'm telling you and how I tell you, you'll get it. But you can be a very famous novelist or a very learned professor and miss it because you're serious. You're seriously into yourself. And Franklin, he's ready. You might say he's even eager to pull our leg. Okay, let me tell you a story. You might believe it. Okay. But then maybe you'll do a double take and go back to it and look at it and say, oh, oh, there's something here. Makes me think of, you know, for many years I've, I've heard, I don't know if Chicago still does this, but in, a, in some liberal arts programs, there's a swimming requirement. And I've always wondered why. And then I was in reading your piece. So there's that line, Franklin's line, "'Tis some great advantage to be free from the slavish terrors many of those who cannot swim are obliged to feel when they're upon the water." I just, it just struck me as a very like, <laughs> oh, yeah. I get it now. Yeah, but it's also slavish terror. Exactly, exactly. And so you need to be free of that. That's befitting a free man to be free of that terror. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, against these establishment figures who are, they are it. And, you know, take off your hat and make humble pie before them. Oh, no. I know, I know who I am and what my worth is. And mm-hmm. I expect to be treated accordingly, not dismissed with the back of, my, of, of your gloved hand. All right, so Dr. Lerner, final question for you. So if, maybe you've already answered this, but if we're thinking about Americans today and society today, a critique of it might be that we're too individualistic, that we focus too much on ourselves, we're distrustful of authority. We're also a very kind of fearful, lonely, alienated people. What does Franklin have to say this today about those qualities? How can we be better citizens, better self-governing people? Yeah, well, you know, if you have a large part of a population or a significant part of a population that behaves like Miss Piggy, you know, it's all about moi, <laughs> then, you know, you've got a hard road to hoe. <laughs> but, I mean, Franklin, who knows the value of money, for sure, you know, he's not against taxation. He, you know, in effect, he's saying, if you're a member of a club, you have to pay the dues. That's part of it. And it's not a question of whether you're, you're, you're paying out more than you're getting back. There's a collective life that's got special value. We're not living in the Hobbes' state of nature. It's a society that tries to, that tries to accomplish things for the benefit of all, not just of a few. 
in the last analysis, or maybe this is just the, the prejudice of someone in my profession, in the last analysis, it's education. How do you teach this? And how you teach it, the value of our collective life and what's most worth preserving in our collective life, that's a long thing. You, know, you, you, you don't inoculate that like a, a vaccine. You have to grow into it. And that requires different modes of communication and dedication. So to the extent that each of us is in a position to do something, a small thing toward the common good, we should cherish that and keep up, not just roll over and let whoever it is walk over us. And I think that's an excellent place to end it. Well, Dr. Lerner, thanks so much. We really enjoyed talking with you, but Ben Franklin, it was a lot of fun. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. If you'd like to read Dr. Lerner's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. And you can listen to more episodes of our podcast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcast apps. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.